Hey guys, so if you watched the live stream, you know that we had technical issues at the beginning of this episode for the first handful of minutes, so we've actually fast-forwarded in the audio version here so that you don't have to listen to it, but enjoy the episode. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. You're listening to Snakes and Stogies. The only podcast dedicated to fine tobacco. All things reptile related. And the people who love them. As part of the Repeticulture Network. Chimp smoking the cigar uh, that his Lance said, damn it, who teaches a chimp to smoke? And then Billy Jenkins said, that is Justin. So Nice. 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 And then Lance Did asked you... if those were drying huts for the cigar wraps. Yes, so that's what they use to ferment the wrapper leaves. So they stick them in these barns on poles, like longitudinally, and then they go up into this barn, and that's where they dry and sort of air out some and Oh, what's up? Salutations. Episode 112. 112. Brought to you by blackboxcages.com. Finally got my XR20 rack filled up over the last day or two. Got everything moved over that was going in there. That thing, top to bottom, is so... Smooth. The, the, I, I know we've talked about it before, but there's something to be said about not having to worry about spilling water bowls anytime you open a tub in a rack. 100%. 100%. How many times you go to pull it, and especially like I'm with Venomous, I don't use my hands. I have to use tools. Right. Like obviously, I have the uh, rack tool from Venom Life Gear, which makes life a lot simple. But even if I'm using the rack tool or just a snake hook, you, you, you get drag and then you finally, it pops open. And the water spills everywhere. Yeah, and you just did a substrate change, and now you got to pull it all out. And yep, or better yet, bring it back just, in. Then you just fill the water bowl half full because you know it's going to happen again. Yep. So it doesn't happen with black box, black box, black box racks. Excellent. So that's why one of the that's one of the big reasons why I love their racks so much is everything's just so smooth, like the action. It's just ridiculous. Ridiculous. Doesn't matter if it's the V70 tub or if it's the you know the F35s or Vision the the V35s. They're all smooth from the top of the rack to the bottom of the rack. There's no no problems, and I love it because you can like when you with the V35s and that XR20 rack like when I push the tub in, like they're so well made like you can feel the air from the back of that slot coming out. It like pushes. It's almost like it's I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like pressurized. Yeah, the, the, the air distribution is appropriate so that it's form-fitting. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, blackboxcages.com, please check them out. Uh, Puget Sound Pythons, our other sponsor. Please check them out as well. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Reptile News Radio. They're doing all kinds of cool stuff. They're awesome people, and we are fortunate to call them friends. I'm getting cut here. What are you smoking? Well, I got some new neighbors. They just moved in last oh. week. And uh, last 
snakes and stogies before we went live uh my neighbor was kind enough he says hey man uh, we haven't met yet but here's two cigars i saw your ashtray and saw you doing little podcasts so uh here (laughs) have a have have some cigars on me what you know thanks for being a neighbor and i was like oh man that's great thanks so much and then i looked at it i was like oh romeo and juliet churchill's nice i haven't had one in a long time and they're cuban oh yeah very nice. So, um, initial smoke, initial puff. The, the, like lit or like, cold, cold like, draw? No, like cold draw and, and lit draw. Like gotcha. Cuban, done. However, I, and, and the tightness of the draw tells me Cuban too, just from my own personal <laughs> experience. Um, <laughs> but what was interesting to me is I wonder how he kept it because the texture in the hand feels fantastic. But there's almost no smell to it. I mean, there's a little bit now that it's starting to, you know, be effervescent. Right. But but before I, like, right after I clipped it, you know, I kept trying to smell it. No odor at all, which I thought was really interesting. Huh. Could just be me. Maybe I'm. I mean, it doesn't look old. Like it doesn't no. look like an older. No, and it cut really. People. It cut real well. So. Mm. Yeah. Oh. And you, sir, what are we smoking? Uh, so this is something I got for my birthday last year. It is a Blackwork Studio Honey and Hand Grenades. I don't know. I'll have to look it up. I'm not entirely sure. I've had some of their stuff in the past, and it was good, but it wasn't anything mind-blowing. You know, something that was like, I got to smoke this again kind of thing. Okay. Um, but I probably ought to look it up. All right. Did see. you get my text message about our guests this evening? Oh, I did not. Yes. I wasn't sure uh, what the status was on that. So, uh... Bill Hunt is go, um, and our surprise guest is going to try from what I gather, but he's going to use his phone because the internet speed in his home for the computer, he's afraid of it lagging out. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. He he may not even join us at all, depending on his condition. So, but Billy Hunt's ready to rock and roll. So, rock and roll. What's uh, what's been going on? Anything new over the week? No, I um. I started to warm up geckos. I uh, I knew I had a bunch of work stuff going on, and I wasn't going to cool anything this year. And I'm like, you know what? Let me just do a solid three and a half, four weeks of 10-degree drop, just 10 degrees, and just see how things go. And uh, all the geckos look fantastic, except uh, I don't know if you remember I had that one with the with the bulged eye. Yeah. Um, she lost a ton of weight like, mm-hmm. like that. So uh, she's nowhere near breeder size yet. Um, she's still got at least another year. But other than her, everyone looks tip top. Dude, my males look phenomenal. Like they didn't they didn't lose an, a speck of weight for the entire month. No food, no water, just chilling. And uh, I'll raise it another five degrees probably tomorrow. Feed them again, and then feed them probably two or three more times. And then I'm gonna I have the uh, V70 rack completely empty, st- sanitized, empty. I'm literally just going to throw a bunch of sand in a V70 and put two geckos together and see what happens. So, and we'll try. We'll try no man's land. So, thank you very much, Ryan Cox. Oh yeah, that is cool. Okay. Other than that, same with the status quo. What about yourself, sir? Uh, yeah. So I spent a big chunk of the day today because Mondays are kind of like my snake days. Because 
you know, the wife's usually working. I'm off. So that's the days I catch up on, on cleaning everything and stuff. And so I did massive right. like cleans and water changes for everybody. Um, shot some video on the bio G's that I have my rhinos and the one Condro in for YouTube yeah. at some point. I like the picture of Katie with the, with the Ganyo. Yeah. Yeah. She loves those things. Um, so that'll be good. It's kind of a, just a review and how I set them up. Um, and then other than that, just been putting snakes together and no signs of any eggs or anything yet. Still pretty early in the process, but moving ahead at full speed. So, and, uh, and the Chinese are doing, uh, doing what they're supposed to be doing. Those. Yeah. I've separated those. I gave, I gave both of them a break cause they just wouldn't stop. Um, but I'm probably going to put him back in here soon. Okay, cool. So we'll see. Good stuff. But yeah, it's uh, blood reds together. Well, we can. We'll make the best of it. So, but Billy, yeah, was, we were. I think you were about to tell us how your critters are doing right now. Yeah, uh, they're doing good. Uh, just got a clutch of maclod eggs today, so I'm excited about that. Nice. Same one of the same females from last year. Yes. How many? Well, eggs you get? You know, the the only one I still have um, ended up with nine from that one. So it'll be a uh, it's the F one male to the long term captive female. So really excited about that. Can get you know fresh blood out there and stuff. So it's always a good thing. Everything else, I I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. But two clutches for the season so far, so it's already good. a good season. So hopefully, we can keep that going. Yeah, man. The uh, I was going to ask you: Have you gotten any feedback from people that got your max babies from last year? Uh, a little bit. Okay, yeah, a little bit, and they all seem all, to be doing well. And okay, uh, I know the one Jeff and Kendra got is still extremely defensive they're always sending me pictures of it s up outside of its tub like it lifts up so much where the whole body's <laughs> out of the tub so they're doing mac things so cool man i'm glad it's always good to hear that you know the animals that you produced are, are doing well this much time past you know absolutely well i mean that's the goal you know to get them to into capable hands and I always tell everybody that I sell stuff to like, Hey, give me updates. Cause I want to see how things turn out and all that, you know? And then it helps me too, as a breeder. Cause if I see, Oh, well, this marker turns into this with that animal, you know, that that's all information I can use to, you know, do better at breeding the next year and selective breed and all that. So. Yeah. There's the, the famous story of the guy who bred a bunch of snakes and he sells off all the babies and doesn't have any contact with any of the people that bought them. And then yeah. he sells off the parents years later. <clears throat> and almost a decade later, somebody sees him at a show and says, Hey man, that snake turned out to have these white blotches all over it after it, you know, after it's two year old, it's two year birthday. It's like white blotches thing turned out to be calico and uh, all the parents were gone and that's it. Yeah. That's so, the end of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, like I, uh, last year I bred, my coastal river to uh, Trinidad, if anybody follows the stuff I name. Oh, yeah. And they're my really light coastals. And uh, I've, I'm i pretty much keeping all of the, all of the, you know, uh, 
I'm really hoping that project, you know, goes well for me and I can get a like pixels and stuff. So very cool. Yeah. Very good. Fifth 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 time's a charm. Fifth time's a charm. He's moving. He's moving good. No? <laughs> he shakes his head no. <laughs> I, cut, I tried to cut my camera so the I tried cutting my camera to hopefully use less bandwidth, but everything was choppy. Well, you sound good right now. Like, don't move at all. Just stay yeah, right where you're at. Crystal clear. <laughs> as long as I don't move a muscle, I'll be fine. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep your rocks glass right real close to your face so you don't have to move your elbow. <laughs> Well, you guys want to uh, try to get some questions out to Jason to see if you get something? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd love to know what coals he's got in the fire right now. Here's, well, this is um, a good question. I got a bunch of blackheads I'm trying to produce. Go ahead, Jason. <laughs> yeah, go so ahead. I got, a, I got a bunch of blackheads I'm trying to get to reproduce right now and then. Because I keep dropping out. Oh, we hear you when you talk. Yeah, just keep going. Oh, okay. Uh, a bunch of blackheads I got. I'm trying right now. Unfortunately, the albino projects with the with the blackheads failed again this season. I've got one egg that looks decent, but the the veins are real weak, and uh, a second one that's already gone bad but I'm waiting on everything else to start dropping. And then hopefully uh, I got some Kribos that dropped, a few tiger rats that are looking gravid, but not the Mexican tigers yet. So hopefully the Mexican tigers will come through for me as well. But just trying a bunch of different stuff that's a little more unique. Gives me a little less of uh, competition at the tables whenever – you hit the shows if you got a bunch of stuff no one else is producing. Yeah, you, you do that anyway with all your stuff. <laughs> got to be slanging, man. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a that's an inside joke with uh, him and one of his buddies. They used to scream if they were. Uh, there's like a certain dollar amount if they sold something, they would just scream throughout the show like slanging, and so they do. And he, every time I've done a show with them, that's all he does because freaking guy sells everything. Nice. Uh, which which species of Kribos uh, are we keeping? I got yellow tails and black tails right now. Awesome. And you know localities on them or no? No, I, I just uh, some animals I picked up off uh, a friend of mine, um, Charlotte, that had she was a carpet python breeder and she's kind of like backed way off to spend time with her kids. But she had a real nice collection of carpet pythons and some blackheads from me and some other breeders. And she was thinking of moving and 
sold me Kribos a while ago. But you end up staying in the country. Awesome, man. I'd love to keep I know keep, it's keep, uh, keep us posted. I got uh poor clutch out of the yellowtail. I got eight fertile and six infertile. But you know, like Billy gets mad at me for saying I have a bad year whenever I get something, <laughs> but if everything's not producing like I want it to, it's it's not a good year. So I'd like to try to, you know, th there's a combination of things that drive me and it's things not producing like I think they should. And people running their mouths that just kind of, I've learned to not get angry anymore. Just use it as fuel. hundred percent, man. hundred percent. I love it. Yeah. This guy, he produced blackheads, uh, Mexican tigers, uh, a couple other like oddball stuff last year. And he's like, Oh, my year sucked. It was a bad season. All this. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Blackheads and Mexican tigers. Like, what are, what are you talking about? Yeah, he didn't even mention the Pacillanotus. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. A good season to him is like yeah. a dream season to, well, yeah. To anyone else. But... Well, for us in the small time, there's the big time guys who do far, far more than we'll ever dream of. But okay. you know, I, I the Pasolino knows that hopefully they'll they'll go get this here for us. Oh, you know what I'm talking about, Billy. Some of these guys are oh, yeah. they they've got thousands of stuff, thousands of animals they're producing. Oh. We were down here they producing 100, 150 animals. We're not. We're, we're little little small time fry. Remember, sir, quality over quantity. And from what I gather, you're the top of the quality. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. The uh, I'm trying. The hopefully this year, uh, while the albino blackheads failed on me, um, at least mostly one egg. You know, there's always hope, but I'm not going to hold my breath on that. Um, my Swiss line that I've been working on for the last 10 years is hopefully taking the next step into even being cleaner and nicer, which I'll end up holding some of those back if they are. So yeah, I'm trying to refine stuff and get, make, make a nicer animal overall on everything I'm working with. Same with the Mexican tiger rats. I produced some last year, but they were, uh, mixed locality this year i've got some pure locality tamalimpas animals which are the the super uh vibrant tricolor mexican tigers and i'll definitely have to hold some of those back so thankfully i got a big building now so i can hold a bunch of crap back and and make billy jealous still got to get over there man to check it out you're holding out not letting me come over All right, say it again. I missed you. I said you're holding out because you won't let me come over and check it out. Oh, yeah, no, I guess I missed you. <laughs> that's, yeah, we'll get you over here sometime, man. And and hey, who knows? That one blackhead egg that's got the weak veins, maybe the veins are just albino. <laughs> That'd be that nice. That's what I told him. Yeah, 
That's what Dude, I told him. And, yeah. Glass half full, baby. Glass There's half There's only one albino that matters, and that's Baird's. <laughs> I got some of those as well, but they're not going to be producing this year. The female didn't do well after producing eggs last year. So next year, I've got a couple other females I'm raising up to be producing them as well. How long have you had have been into those? Uh, I collected a male Bairds off, uh, what is it, Loma Alta 377, I think it is. Can't remember the, the the number, the road number, but um, that was two thousand four, I think. Uh, and he was just a screamer. I thought it was a gray banded king when I saw him. He had these crazy orange <laughs> saddles, and he's still beautiful to this day. And around the same time, I grabbed some of the albino or hypo beards, uh, just just to have a, a morph to add with him. And I've had them since then. I just they don't. For some reason, I don't do great with them. I do better with blackheads than I do with beards. I don't know why. Huh. That's strange. Yeah, you'd think that their their environment would be relatively similar. Yeah. Well, what I love about beards is they eat always. Coming out of the egg, in shed, it just doesn't matter. Those things will always eat, which is so different than a blackhead. And do you have any Womas in the fire? No, I got out of the Womas. Um, they're, they're just dicks, to be honest. Can you, can you hear me? <clears throat> yeah. Everything just cut out for some reason. You got to hear now. No, it's, it's uh, looking good on my end. Every, yeah, everyone looks good on, on my end. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, I got the Womas because they were just such dicks. They were always trying to, to bite, and it just got annoying to deal with them. Um, I know I, I just watched somebody's podcast where they were saying blackheads are the same, but I feed mine, and they're not. So I don't know if it's just if you keep them too skinny, they, they want to eat you because they're just starving, but I feed mine – well, and they do great for me, and I don't have that problem. I, I've been bit by blackheads two or three times since 2009 when I started keeping them. Uh, I just don't have that issue with a Woma. It's two or three times every time you take it out of the cage. So, not a, just wasn't a it wasn't an enjoyable species to keep for me. Like I kept red tailed green rats, and it was the same thing. They're just always trying to bite you. Different mentality between the two species but it's still i don't mind getting bit that's not i mean tigers bite the crap out of you as well but there needs to be a reason for it and it's not that i want to kill you or eat you it needs to be you scared me you're in my cage you're you violated some little unwritten rule here not just because i hate you um so if the animals don't act like that i just end up not enjoying keeping them so i get rid of them I, at the end of the day, I try to keep a collection that I truly enjoy. So even if they don't sell, I can still work with the animals. But a red-tailed green rat, I, I wanted them for years, like decades. I finally got them, and I was like, 
wow, these things are complete dicks. And, you know, did not have them for long and got rid of them. Yeah, they don't, that, that true Ganyasoma don't really have much in the way of uh, personality in terms of like enjoyable personalities. <laughs> I got personality, it's just not a good one. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've only ever had one Woma, and I kept him for about a year, and we named him Cuddles because he was a bona fide asshole, and I wound up giving him away as a pet to somebody just because he was so mean, and I warned them, and they're like, "It's fine, it's Cuddles." So, uh, but now Casey Cannon has been implanting the 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 high banded, high contrast Woma in my mind, so now I'm constantly Instagramming pictures of Womas, but then I remember how nasty Cuddles was. So, uh, who knows? One thing that I know I did differently between blackheads and Womas is my blackheads always, if they were, if I was keeping them, they always went into a vision cage early on. Womas were always in drawers, in racks, and I think that might play a role. So I think it's an unfair because I've, I've talked to other people who have Womas that they say are completely calm, and it's something I've noticed over the years. If you keep animals in racks they they basically lose their mind it's they they everything they see is a food response in one way or the other either you're, you're giving them food or you're picking up their old food or you're giving them water and they just they behave very aggressively all the time um so i just want to say that for a fair shake on womas i think if i could raise one in a vision or a glass front enclosure and then see if it, it truly behaves the same way, then okay. That's, that's their personality type. But I just, it's one of those things that's always in the back of my mind. Cause I did do that with, with my blackheads. They always get bigger cages and they're just so much more calm. But when the, I have a single female, my, one of my first, the first trio I purchased one female stayed with the original owner longer. And she was in a drawer system the entire time. To this day, she's a 2004 animal. To this day, she still cage strikes if she does. If she's not in her hide. I can't get her to, to break that. She's never stopped it. She doesn't bite in hand like a Woma would, but the cage striking is also one of those little annoyances that I can't break her from. Very interesting, man. Very interesting. Yeah, that is. And I could see how it could definitively be and I hate speaking in definitives, but it could definitively be species specific as well as individual animal specific. You know what I mean? But it makes sense that the species you're keeping may not be, may survive and be healthy in a rack system, but may not socially or behaviorally be best in there. Yeah. The, the, all the puffing snake complex, which are the tigers, the sulfurous, the pacillinotus, um, I just refer to those as the puffing snake complex. I've refused sales to people that want to put them in a rack. They are a visually oriented animal. You walk in the room, they watch your every move. They see what you're doing. They want to know what's going on. And putting them in a rack is just straight, cruel, unusual punishment for those animals. They, I, I can't see live, keeping them that way. Uh, there's people who have got them from me. They've done that. And they've told me they're not really cool animals that they're they're kind of shitty um i keep them not in racks keeping them in glass front enclosures and i like i had a uh my my original sulfurous female my big i, I have 
2.2 is my original and personality wise sulfurous are just all over the chart but my my confident calm female i brought her out i hand her off to kids at educational exhibits she's never bit anybody except for me at home but uh that's only in her cage when she's at her cage she's kind she's curious she's looking to go all over the place the other female she did stay in a drawer longer. I don't think that's the case with her uh, as the reasoning, but she's, if you touch her, I'm usually grabbing them over my shoulder like that by their tail. <laughs> if I touch her, she's just out the cage in a, in an instant. It's amazing how fast they are. And I usually, she's a like nine foot animal and I catch the, the final foot and a half to two feet of her tail as she shoots over my shoulder. Most times it's stunning, but she's the exact opposite of the other, other sulfurous. The, my main girl, it, when she's in her cage, she knows it's not feed time or anything. She's like the only snake I've ever had where I can, she'll like seem like she's wanting you to, to pet her. Like I can scratch her head and she just seems to like kind of lean into it and stuff. Where the other one, near her, her cage, she's bolting. So they're, they're an interesting species. They're one that I really hope people, pick up on because they're super smart. They're really into seeing what's going around the tigers. They're a little bit bigger and bulkier than the tigers. They're supposedly one of the top five biggest colubrids in the world. You know, there's everybody has all these different criteria for them, but they supposedly can get 14 feet, but they're wow. routinely for me, they're somewhere in the eight to nine foot range. I don't feed an absolute crap ton to them. I'm sure you could pump them and get them up to 14. I'm not, I don't, they, they crap a lot. I don't want 14 feet of, you know, three a week crap out of them. Nine, nine foot's plenty. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's incredible, man. Uh, have you ever messed around with the, uh, Caronius, the, um, Sippo snakes? No, uh, I, I ran into him in the wild. My wife's Peruvian. We went to the Peruvian Amazon. Uh, the crew captured one species, and then on the way out, we caught a second species. The um, I can't remember the names of them now. The one that starts out green and ends up red as an adult. Uh, we captured one of those right at the boat dock on the way out. Um, ah, crap. I should have studied more. <laughs> the machete um, snake? Yeah. Ironically, there was a, a little lo local lady that was trying to hand me her machete to take care of the snake. And, you know, they, they she completely unfazed to see my giant six foot, eight, six foot eight ass dive down the side of the river bank. That didn't bother her at all. The fact that he came up with the snake didn't bother her. Like, very nonchalantly, it's like, maybe you need a knife? But, uh, yeah, no, they, they, it was it was a great time, but I've never kept them in captivity. They're the frog and lizard eaters don't appeal to me that much. It just I, I know it's going to be a tragedy, something that you're going to enjoy because they are also a di diurnal, visually oriented animal, and that has a lot of appeal to me. But they also come full of parasites. So I guess if somebody else starts producing captive bred animals that are taking rodents and doing well, um, I might grab some. Very cool, man. Very cool. The fact that you see one in the wild is incredible. 
It truly is. And I, I think one of the problems with them is that the ones that get imported, they are so full of parasites and whatnot, but they're also not the, I don't want to be insulting to the species, but they're also not the most aesthetically pleasing. A lot of the ones that come in are very drab, very blah looking because those are the easier ones to find. And that, Crispy. from the, yeah, they're, they're the more, the more common ones from the places that we actually can legitimately export from. So, but they're, I, I feel like they're very much lumped in that whole puffing group of snakes, you know, figured I'd ask. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're more of a lizard eater, whereas the the rest of the animals are, the Pacillinotus sulfurus and um, Pilatus are more uh, bird and rodent feeders. <clears throat> Though I was messaging Harry Green about Pacillinotus years ago, and he was astounded that I actually had him feeding on rodents and wanted me to put something in Herp Review about it. And uh, it's like, well, what else are they going to eat? <laughs> He's like, well, they, all, they only eat birds in the wild. But as long as they're a bird eater, it's I think we're we're fairly safe in captivity because it's we, we have readily and now cheaper <laughs> birds available than rodents with the rodent prices the way they're going. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's super cool. Everybody else is complaining about gas prices. I'm looking at rodent prices and complaining about that shit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah we, I mean, three three of our friends have bought rodents this week, and they all said the same thing. They were like, "My my ass hurts. This was rough." Yeah, I'm setting up a colony of quail probably in the next week and a half. I got uh, I just dropped like a grand on an incubator, so I cannot spend money on rodents. That's smart, man. That's real smart. I was just listening to. Uh... Uh, I'm really late on following up on podcasts, but I was listening to the Australian Herpetoculture Network podcast. And uh, with when Scott was on talking about keeping giant monitors and how the most, the cheapest thing about buying a giant monitor is the price of the animal itself, because he's looking at around 50, if he was to buy his own rodents, I think it was like $1,500 a month per lizard in rodents, Something like that. I mean, obviously, their prices might be different than ours, but still, it, it, it adds up quick, and we oftentimes forget about that, you know? Yeah. For sure. The the quail and their growth rate and what, I, what size I need to feed my collection, the more I thought about it, the more it made so much sense, and and if you go through some of the bigger distributors, you can get a thousand eggs from them. If you don't have your own colony breeding at basically 40 cents a piece, it takes you three weeks to hatch them and then another week to raise them up. And they're the size of small rats. So 40 quail? cents a piece. Yeah. 40 cents a piece plus a, a month of your time. And you're, you're saving the difference on the, uh, I mean, of course, there's food, there's care, there's all that other crap involved, but they're, you're saving on the cost of a, a small rat at this point, which yeah. at a buck a piece for rat, not worth it. At two two fifty, whatever it's up to now. Yeah. yeah. Have you noticed with your snakes that you're feeding more birds to? This is a question we we ask ourselves and our and lots of people all the time. Is so like I feed majority rodents, but supplement birds. And I will notice that their stool is a little looser 
because of the bird opposed to the rodent for whatever reason. Maybe it's the fur, maybe it's the feathers. Have you noticed anything like that or no? Uh, <laughs> the puffing snake complex are basically bird poopers. They, they poop like a bird. That's like having a great blue heron in your cage. So <laughs> you, you couldn't tell if it was looser or not. <laughs> With the pythons, I've never, I mean, when you've got tiger rats and notice to compare to the the beauty, the absolute utter beauty of a python or boa turd is so amazing to see that you don't even mind if there's a little bit of water to it. Because, I mean, the I, I came up keeping colubrids almost exclusively, and then I finally got some pythons and boas, and those cute little basically dog turds they drop out are like, what is this? This is so easy to clean. This is what spot cleaning is all about. You just go in and take the little tiny turd out. All right. Beautiful. You know, the with the all the colubrids in general, you've got this. It's basically a bird crap. So I, I don't notice a difference at all. And even if I there was, it, it's so far from what I don't deal with normally. It's it's not even something to worry about. Du- duly noted, man. Duly noted. I just know that, like, I have water pythons and. If I give them a rat, then I get a turd. If I give them a a, a, a chick or a juvenile chicken, it's 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 like watercolors. Yeah, I, don't I actually want to get some water pythons this season. So if you're producing any, let me know. Nah, we got we got about a, another year before I'll even think about it. But uh, but B- Billy's definitely getting as many as I can produce. So we'll, we'll have to keep you in mind. For the for the distant future, we'll get you set up, Jason. You're sniping me, Billy. I gotta have some <laughs> contacts. You can't have all of them. All right, I already got another line on some other ones. Anyway, you're not that special. Of course, of course you do. Yeah. So, Jason, why don't you get into the? Uh... The different tiger rat uh, locale and subspecies and stuff. I know that's something we definitely have to hit on for uh, my buddy Smitty up there. 100%. Well, I mean, officially, there's no subspecies currently. Yeah, there's no no subspecies currently with the... Because, you know, they've moved away from subspecies at this point. And I don't think there's any species that have been fully recognized. I think everything is currently technically just Pilatus throughout their range. I might be completely wrong on that. But the the guy who did the work to move Sulfurus into Spilodes, um I can't think of his name now. Uh, when he did that work, he looked at every the rest of the um, the tiger rats throughout their ranges. And he said that it was pretty obvious that we've got a distinct species in Mexico, southward into north of Costa Rica, um, which would be Mexicanus. In Costa Rica, he said in the small sample size he looked at, genetically, it looks like there's a eastern and western species there on either side of the mountain. Uh, Another species or two going into South America, which kind of basically this all kind of follows suit with the boas almost, but in that, that Panama, uh, Colombia, Ecuador region, there's, there seems to be 
a species on the west side of the mountains. And then in the, the basin, there's looks like another species there. And then the Atlantic slope of Brazil is just a wonderland of unique species over there. Um, the, if you don't ever, if you like Instagram is this marvelous thing where you can go on and just search tiger rats. And if you notice anything from Sao Paulo has these almost Northern pine square blotches down their back mm-hmm. that are amazing. And you don't see them else. But Sao Paulo is going to be, depending on where they're actually looking, that's most likely going to be that Atlantic Slope region, which is also where that boa that just got, quote-unquote, rediscovered after they asked the locals if they've ever seen the boa. They're like, yeah, it's right yeah, over there. Uh, uh, was it Cropany? Yep. Cropany, yeah. It's extinct. It's no, no one's ever seen it. For the locals who see it every day, and it's in the tree over there across the way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's Atlantic Slope as well. Um, sulfurous from that area are these beautiful redheaded sul, uh, sulfurous. Um, but yeah, there's looks like there's a whole bunch of different species. I try to push everybody who I talk to with tigers to not cross anything from South America with anything from Central America. Breed lo, uh, locality-specific if you can, because it, it truly looks like we've got a whole bunch of different species where just no one's done the work yet. And the problem that the the original guy said is it's just it's too difficult to work with people from that many different countries and that huge range that they come from um just getting anything out of venezuela for instance is going to be a nightmare yeah so um it, it's just a it's a hard a hard road for some poor grad student to to run down basically <laughs> And I mean, the Brazil stuff's already, I mean, that's a no-go regardless. I'm on my phone, so I can't tell if you got any good ones. Yeah. Brazil's amazing. If you find the Brazilian sulfurous with the red head, mm-hmm. uh, there's one I shared repetitively to the point that the the park whose picture it was took it off of their page because they didn't like all the comments they were getting. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. That monster. Yeah. That was my obsession for about six months of my life, staring at that photo. We were talking about uh, these guys not that long ago, and I think we Phil had mentioned they're like the, the New World Ganyasoma in a way. Just how similar they can be, you know, in terms of their sort of their behavior and stuff no that that's that's the species i was talking about i've I've handed them off to children my eight foot female just hand them right off to kids and uh, because i I started the uh chicago junior herb society when i was up there um and the kids we brought in we did we did a show and tell but the kids weren't prepared for it and they hadn't didn't have their own animals so I brought a bunch of my own animals in and one of the things I brought in was sulfurous and handed it off to a couple of the kids completely nowhere near Ganesoma. They're completely trackable out of the cage in the cage. They are Satan unleashed out of the cage. They are puppy dogs. It it is so bizarre. They just give up easily. 
Yeah. At one point years ago, the first three pages of Google for Sulfurous were all my pictures. <laughs> well, I'm seeing a bunch of them as he's going through. How um how's your red project going with your uh, oh, mine. red and yellow I Sulfurous? Yeah. What about it? starting them yet or are they ready or how's that looking they shall hopefully go this year um it's the unfortunately with sulfurous the their personality dictates their consumption of food greatly and when they're the skittish version they're hard to get to feed when they're confident they eat like crazy and with the the red line uh my males were confident the females weren't so the females are just still smaller um which sucks but they're they should be good this year they actually ovulated last year just never dropped good eggs for me they didn't drop anything at all so as far as the sulfurous you just have the the red line and then you have your your black and yellows that you work with correct yeah. Yeah, I had a green animal, but it was the, the so sulfurous wild caught don't do great. Um they they're a big, lean, long animal that needs good hydration. And when they come out of the wild, they're they're parasite ridden. A couple of the wholesale flippers that get them in love to advertise that they're treating them before they go out which with a big, long, lean animal that's dehydrated because it's been kept poorly is just a death sentence. Yeah. So you get the animal in, it looks great. Six, six months, nine months later, their kidneys that took that shock of the treatment before hydration fail, and they drop dead on you. So I highly recommend, whether it's myself or the small handful of other people that are captively breeding them, if you're going to spend money on them, get them captively bred because the wild caught are just uh, just a, a tragedy waiting to happen for you. Because like I said, they're so personable, so cool to deal with in, in captivity. Um, I mean, they'll they watch you come in the room. It's it's a different experience with them than it is with most snakes. And I, I had multiple wild caughts I've had in the past that have just dropped dead on me. And it just sucks because it's like, that's my favorite snake. My favorite snake just died. My new favorite snake also just dropped dead. All my captive born stuff is still alive and kicking with no issues. So I just kind of, I've said multiple times in the past, I'm not getting any more wild caught. Then something amazing wild caught comes in and Billy sends it to me and <laughs> I end up buying it. But if, if not for friends, I, I won't buy any more. <laughs> I mean, is it one of those things where exactly. you get them in and then you just kind of ignore them for a couple of weeks before you do anything with them? Or is it like, do you have sort of a procedure? hydration? It's, yeah. it's hydration, hydration, hydration. You really get, and it's not, you, you can't soak them in a, in a water bowl for a night and they're hydrated. They need to just really have a couple weeks of proper humidity and clean water and they don't drink standing water as wild caught animals very well. 
So misting, but then keeping their their cage clean and dry so they don't have bacteria build up. It's just a if you're doing it well and you're doing it right, it's not the end of the world to get them acclimated. But if you treat them before they're properly hydrated, you're going to have kidney damage and it's going to show itself months down the road with a sudden death. They just don't show it off well. And then, and especially it's another thing is um, living in Chicago. I had the amazing luck of having a bunch of top notch vets nearby to talk to. Uh, one of the things that one of the vets was explaining to me is that the, the, the regimen for Panicure and Flagyl has greatly decreased since the 70s and 80s. But a giant majority of the reptile keepers have those cute little medicating charts from the 70s and 80s that they keep passing around to each other. It's like using no pest strips. Do they work? Yeah. Are you also poisoning your animal? Yes. Are you going to tell me it's the best thing you could ever use because it killed all your mites? Sure. Did you also poison your animal? Yes. It didn't die. Okay, cool. But it's going to die later. So it's it, it just, it's that mentality where there's a bunch of home vets that we have because there's no good vets. So as a platform you guys have here, uh, ARAV, American Reptile and Amphibian Vets of America, ARAV.org, gets you, all you have to do is punch in your zip code and it gives you everybody who's a registered vet with ARAV in your in your area. You can set your mileage, how far you're willing to drive. Does it mean they're a good reptile vet? No, but it does mean they, they spent the time to spend the money on the classes to be included in ARAV. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of those things. Like I, it's, it's amazing to me how few people are aware that there is a website you can go to to find out who is a registered vet that deals with reptiles and amphibians in their area. I had no idea. That's fantastic. Really? I, n- I never heard yeah. of that. Oh, I didn't. I mean, that's yeah. like, we've, we've, we've mentioned that in the past, like any vet is better than, than nothing. But if you can find someone who specializes in that, even if they may not be the best reptile vet, they have colleagues that they can ask questions. Um, yeah. You know, I lived with so, a vet for, for a while and there's a whole database of like that they can search I guess that's you know exclusive to them and they can look up symptoms and things and like they have information that we don't have and have access to it. So yeah, they may not be a reptile specific vet, but they at least know somebody or they have, it's a, it's a, it's a step in the right direction at the very least. Yeah. ARAP is a organization of reptile vets. And when they had the giant vet conference down here in Orlando every year, there's a sub conference for the specific reptile and amphibian vets. And I believe I'm not a vet. I don't, no, I mean, I know vets, but I don't know exactly how their criteria work, but I'm pretty sure from what I remember hearing is that they have to pay to be involved in the ARAB group. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. like you're, you join the club yeah. and you have to have educational criteria there. So you basically, it's, I'm not telling you you're going to get a great vet that way, but you're at least going to get a vet who has done something besides dog and cat. Mm-hmm. So you, you get somebody going in the right direction and then yes, absolutely. In that data database, they have the ability to look for things. So when I had a Pacillonotus get sick over a decade ago, my vet, uh, Dr. Horton in Chicago, was the vet I was using at that time. She was able to find a uh, colleague in Arizona who treated somebody's imported Pacillonotus a decade earlier. Like, I didn't even know they were in the country. This would have been like probably close to 30 years ago. But some guy had treated it there, and he, she was able to contact him and get some information. Is the best information? I have no idea. 
the animal lived, everything was good, but it, it, it it's something. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's really I'm totally looking that up tonight. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's hopefully I got some vets some business who actually spent some money on reptile courses over their education. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned those old school, you know, at home reptile vet, you know, you know, give it Batril and heat on everything, you know, because there's been plenty of times where in, when I was younger and just getting into this stuff and I had a, uh, an import that had, you know, some kind of parasite and they would say, oh, you know, do this much Panicure. And I'm like, well, this says it's for cows and horses. And like, it's fine. You can't overdose it. Meanwhile, I'm giving it 200 times the correct dose because it just that's just what they did. You know, we didn't we didn't know. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Barton was the one who was explaining to me that, that those um, medication criteria have greatly reduced over the years. And he half of Douglas Mader's book, he's, he's either uh, writing the articles himself or assisting in those things. So it's a, he's, he's one of the top vets in the country. He just doesn't have the, the book with his name on the, out there for everybody. So I'll take his word over somebody who's importing. The guy that actually spends money on and and uh, went went to vet school. Touche, sir. Touche. So <laughs> Jason, going back to uh, so uh, can you give some of your experiences with? Wild caught animals and how to figure out those species to where you have them now. Um, I got stupidly lucky with what I have. Uh, getting captive born, I didn't. I, I've gotten in wild caught and had some success breeding those before they died. But that was primarily getting in like male sulfurous and bringing it to a captive bred female before the male dropped dead. I've had two of those red animals come through my hands. Both have died within a couple of years of uh, being in captivity. And it, neither, like I said, neither have died immediately. But I've gotten lucky and gotten breedings out of them. But it, they, they're not living like the, the captive bred animals have. Um there's a gentleman named Tom Davis here in Orlando who's not that Tom Davis or that Tom Davis or that Tom. There's like a dozen Tom Davises in the reptile hobby. This guy's not online at all. He's a teacher, stays off internet completely as far as I can tell. But he, what he, he loves the same stuff I love. And I just happened to connect with him and he's a great guy, but he, he produced the sulfurous that I have uh, my main breeding group. Um, and just no one else knew what they were and he just wanted to get rid of them all. So he bought everything he was selling myself and my buddy Gavin and John Anderman purchased from him. Uh, we were all dead broke and had to pool our money together to get them all, but we absolutely jumped on it. So I've gotten lucky like that, that it's someone else got lucky with a gravid import or something. And I was able to get captive born animals and that Pacilla notice have come in through, um, one of the importers out of Costa Rica, but they're actually captive born animals 
for the most part, uh, there seems to be like two sources and one of those two, I don't know if the water is not clean or what, but they're, it's a hit or miss with them. Some of the imports come in and they do fantabulous and never have an issue. The other ones just randomly drop dead on you. So, but at this point there's got to be six of us that are breeding Pacillinotis in the U S. So there's really not any reason to, to get imports at this point. Do you think that it ever has to do with the age of the animal as well? Especially if you're getting some larger field collected specimens. Like, for example, you know, I was given a, a, an Echis leucogaster that I had for, I mean, probably seven, eight years as an adult. And it just passed away this week. And it wasn't doing so well. But obviously, it wasn't for my husbandry because I had it for seven or eight years. So I imagine the animal was fairly up there in age when I got it. And then it still lived another seven, eight years. So do you ever think that that might be a case too, considering that you are keeping everything oh. else tipped up? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think it's a combination of things. Certain species, I mean, look at what came in back in the day as imports that, that form the basis of our hobby. They were all generally fairly thick-bodied species that can handle a little bit of dehydration or air from animals that don't dehydrate very much. Um, the, you know, even our, the milk snakes that do the best for us were a little heavier body, like Honduran milk snakes are a bit heavier bodied animals. Um, boas and pythons, obviously the thin skinny stuff just never did well. Cause I think it's a, that dehydration factor of the shipment. And then the people treating a dehydrated animal that's skinny like that, they don't. They can't take that beating as much. Yeah, renal failure is a hell of a thing. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's it, it, we're advancing greatly in the hobby. We we have the opportunity to keep a lot of stuff alive. Um, there's uh, I can't get anybody's name tonight. Brittany Williams that's doing amazing things with her little skinny tree snakes and snail eaters and stuff. And you just didn't see those things live at all in the past. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever been to South America, but an Imantodi Sanchoa is like the most amazing snake in the world. Like if you've never seen one in person, you cannot understand what that animal is in person without seeing it in person. Cause it just defies all logic but those things are never going to do well in, in captivity for us because they're all going to be wild caught and they're all going to be parasite ridden. And even if they're not, you're going to feed them lizards. They're going to give them parasites. But I mean, I don't know if I would keep anything other than those. If you could get them in captivity and keep them alive, they're just, they, they, they blow your mind if you see them in person, but they're also super common in South America. So the field harpers that go down there regularly just get completely jaded to them where they don't, they don't even appreciate them. Have any of you guys ever seen one of those in person? The Amentodes, blunt-headed tree snakes. Not in person. No, I haven't seen I one in person. I'm kid. trying to trying to get a picture right now so we can share it because it is. They're uh, it's a it, super cool species. They're indescribably skinny. They they don't they defy like physics and logic and everything. They're just absolutely amazing. But it's going to take somebody like Brittany or somebody like that who's who's doing going the extra mile to to get something like that into captivity that that might have a chance with it. 
because she's doing the the snail eaters and the vine snakes right now, and she's doing well with them, which are similar. But the Imentodes can get like four feet long, and they're they're string thick. It just doesn't. They simply don't make sense when you see them in person. Yeah, I think help, their head weighs me. more than the entire body. Help me spell Imentodes because I'm butchering it and it's not coming up. I a I am a I'm an a n t o d e s. Okay, got it. Blunt headed is the other is a name for him. Yeah, I just I typed in yellow headed tree snake and that was a horrible idea. <laughs> there we go. Yes, be careful of what you're typing into Google. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah and, and like I said a picture will never do them justice because you can't you can't get confused by them in a picture they're just all but eyeballs. they're like they're absolutely amazing but they're they're all eyeballs and in bodies mass that doesn't make sense. But I'm telling you, there's there are people that go to South America frequently, and they're bored of them. They're a common animal. It, like you, get, I've only been once, so it, they're still just absolute magic to me. Well, I mean, and I think that goes for any. You're, you always get used to the stuff that you see all the time. You know, it's like us with. Uh, corns and yellow rats and water snakes and stuff, you know, it kind of gets, it, we don't get as excited as if we saw something exotic, you know, it was something like that. Hey, wild caught corns are still amazing to me all the time. Well, you're going to get Justin right. excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You a black racer fan? No. I will openly admit I am I I could care less about those damn snakes. They're cool and all, but I see them and I'm just like it's like seeing a squirrel. I'm like, cool, racer, awesome. But I'm sure there's some guy in like Japan or Europe that would murder a small family to see one firsthand. Definitely. Well, it's funny you mentioned people get those. excited for the blue racers up in Illinois. I like the buttermilks. I get it. if we had buttermilks, I'd get excited about those. But. So it's funny you mentioned that because we had the Savophis <laughs> come through uh, recently, uh, like four or five of them, and I don't know who wound up getting them. But if this doesn't make you want to try, I don't know what does. Yeah, those are pretty cool. Yeah, those are cool. Yeah, just like oh, super syphilis, yeah. Yeah. Super menacing looking. Awesome animals. There's a ton of cool species that we don't even see in the hobby. But uh, to my point where, where before I got completely distracted with myself, the part of the issue is that what we see in the hobby are generally the thicker bodied species 
if you really think about it. And that's just because they, they can take the beating a lot better than those, those skinny animals like that. They're, the, and they're also the skinnier animals tend to be lizard or frog eaters. So they're a little bit more difficult to feed. Um, but th- there's a lot of people that are trying now, which is cool as long as they're, their success rate is enough that they can get a captive population going. Like I'm, I'm getting to that age point where I don't want to see a crap ton of imports coming in all the time. If all the results going to be is that they're all dying. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been that way for a while now and it's, I, I'm not anti import by any stretch of imagination. I mean, I got started as one of the idiot flippers that would try to sell everything to the pet stores that I could pick up at the wholesale shop to, supply my own collection because that seemed like a good idea at the time but eventually hopefully you get sick of seeing the rate of death you come across when you're doing that um if you don't i think there's issues yeah i i think you you hit the nail on the head though too is that because we have the resources we have now and the way of thinking has at least minutely evolved i feel like those imports have a much better chance now than they did at least 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's why like, I'm not against imports, but there needs to be people doing something positive with them, not just sacrificing some lives to make a few bucks here and there. Well, I'm a firm believer that even with the internet, we're in probably one of the best times for herpeticulture just because of that fact that we have, there's the, even if it's a small group of people that are working with something in particular, you know, you, you have the ability to connect with those people and you have like this pool of information that you can hopefully eventually spread to, you know, other people. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, there's, there's, there's so much cool stuff out there. It would be amazing if we could see more diversity in the hobby. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a, it's a fine line that we got to walk and and do it the right way. But I mean, there was a time when ball pythons are coming in. I mean, not that they're still not coming in, but a huge number of those are just dying. And that's, you know, it should be a species that doesn't die in captivity. They're they're They should be so easy, but they're mm-hmm. still, a crap ton that come in and they die. But the flip side of that is half the stuff we're getting in in a lot of different species, not a lot, but there's a handful of species that we get in that like tegus, for instance, um, the, uh, I, I saw the numbers for, I can't remember which country it was, but the, there was 5,000 animals exported from the country as live animals. And then there's 250,000 animals exported as skin. So, we're getting our animals from those skin farms in a, in a lot of cases, the tegus are one blood pythons, ball pythons. Those are all skin farm animals that we're getting that from, from them. And it's just the, the CITES allowance that we get in as live animal, which generally seems to dwarf in comparison to the, the dead skin trade animals that are going out. Yeah. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. I do think people are of- starting to diversify a little more, though. Like, I do think people are starting to branch out some. People are starting to sort of wise up that there's so many other species out there that that don't get their 
their dues and you know well that some of us have been uh foretelling the the death of the ball, ball python industry for 25 years now so <laughs> we're getting scared finally <laughs> but it, it's yeah, it is nice to see you're seeing a lot more diversity show up recently not recently the last five ten years it, it's gotten a lot better it for that that big peak of the by the ball python world like 10 years ago it seemed like so many people just dove out of everything else into ball pythons as i, I I'm not a ball python guy by any stretch of imagination, but I don't dislike the animal. I dislike what they did to the hobby for a while where all these guys that kept great stuff, great collections, saw where the money was and dumped out of it. And I don't do anything with ball pythons. People come by my table, tell me I have the greatest table at the show all the time. They've been telling me that for over a decade. And other than the last couple of years, most years I went home with, the money I paid for the show plus 500 bucks, you know, it's, I didn't make any money, but I, I, you know, a bunch of people told me I had the greatest table at the show. And meanwhile, look at the ball Python guys and they're, they're trying to figure out which pocket to stick all their cash into. So I don't blame people for it. I mean, you're in it for, for the love of the animals and for the money. And sometimes, you know, you got kids, the money makes more sense, but at the same time, I like to see a little bit more diversity in the hobby. I don't know. Casey I don't want to be one of those haters that just. Um... <laughs> Casey talks about how it's how the ball python realm is almost an entirely different hobby at this point, and the more I think about that, and the more I see it at shows and stuff, I, I can't really disagree with him. You know, it's the people that are aren't into balls are completely clueless to a lot of stuff that's going on with balls. You know, myself included, and it's kind of the the it's vice versa. You know, anything going on outside of balls, at least with with some of the oddball stuff especially you know uh pilatus and stuff like that you know they're billy's seen it at the shows vending you know he has a carpet and someone says what more football is that and he's like it's not it's a carpet you know yeah what kind of bows are those yeah <laughs> to have people that are focusing on the the other stuff now like we've seen in the past decades it's i mean Plus, you know, helped grow the hobby, you know, and there's good and bad that comes with that. But you know, we also had a large that we have and all that. So it's hard to hate on them too much, but it's also easy at the same time. Yeah, it's an easy target, but it's also you know, it's it's like you were saying, it's one of those things where it's like it has done things for the hobby overall, but you know, it's just it's. If it's your thing, it's your thing. If not, it's not. Whatever. And then you have people like Jeff and Kendra that are have a you know a, a foot firmly planted in both both sides of that that fence. So you know, whatever. More power to them. Yeah, the best of both yeah. worlds. And now they're starting to get some colubrids too. I think there's a lot of people that are doing. Yeah. You're seeing well, a lot of the guys pick up the colubrids again, and uh, the. the Go ahead, Billy. I'll shut up for a minute. I I, I think that's what my wife was saying. She brought me water. <laughs> grown, it seems like overnight. Uh, and just seeing some of the prices, things are, you know, a 
year and a half ago, I got a pair of Blue Beauties, and I paid significantly less for that pair than I'm seeing babies for now. You know, like it's it's crazy, and people are buying them up like like nothing. You know, from diversifying and getting into other things. So hopefully, it's a good thing down the road where the start more variety back at the shows and because everyone talks about the the shows back in the world all different species but type is you see the same five species now uh so hopefully it's getting back to you know the peaks and valleys of now we're going to go to having diversity again and you know and it stays there people complain about not seeing diversity at shows um but that, that's kind of always like that's what I was saying. Like, people tell me at the nicest, the, the best, the most diverse table at a show, but then they walk over and they buy a ball python, a leopard gecko, and a, a bearded dragon. You can complain about what you want to see at the show not being there, but unless you're spending the money, unless you got an idiot like myself who's just in it for the long game, it's just I'm going to do what I'm going to do and. I'll sell my stuff if I get enough people interested. I mean, passion breeds curiosity for sure. But if you're not willing to spend the money, don't complain. And you see people constantly complaining and they don't want to spend the money. I'm not even saying spending money with me, but um, I think it was, I want to say it was Matt most that told me that shows weren't worth it for him to go to. And Matt has that incredible, uh, um, Asian rat snake collection yeah, that he has and that in the world species. And it's a show isn't worth it for him to go to because he can't sell anything. Like, so how are you going to complain? And, and he's absolutely right. I mean, I literally, I did 10 Tinley cause I lived an hour and a half away when I was in Chicago, I did Tinley for a decade where I literally profited on the weekend not counting the animals themselves, but just what my expenditures were. I, I profit like, three to $500 by the time everything was said and done. And that was it at a show that you should, the, the guys are legitimately making 10, 20, 30, $40,000 in sales that weekend. I do 1500 bucks with all my great stuff that I brought there because people thought it was a great table and they walked on by. Like, I mean, I, there was the, uh, I don't know, eight, eight years ago or something. Uh, I had like five or six different influencers or whatever they were at that time come by my table to do interviews and take videos and everything. And that, that weekend I finished a show with all this great advertisement and a $500 profit. It's just like, what the hell? So money yes. talks. If you want to see it either, you have two options. Either you spend the money to bring people that have that diversity to the shows or you, shut up and, and, and put up and bring your own diversity to the shows yourself to show to prove it can work. Yeah. I also think there's a, a side thing that some of us have realized and many people maybe have not thought about, but going back just 10 years, maybe 12 or 15 years, there was, there was more diversity of people breeding stuff in captivity and people kind of got, sidetracking like oh well it's only this or it's only that or i only want to focus on this or i only want to focus on that and then they noticed that stuff was drying up and it wasn't that 
people didn't want to keep it. It was more so that the person breeding the Mexican black king snakes had been doing it for like 25, 30 years, and they were just tired of it. They were they were done, and they were passing the torch. But the problem is they're handing the torch to somebody that's not standing there. There's nobody there. And therefore, you see a snake like a Mexican black king, which I think are cool. That was a $40 snake, you know, 80 bucks a pair, whatever it was. And then my buddy Marcus gives me a pair of babies. He's like, oh, this is this locality, and it's lime bread and blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're flawless specimens. And I'm like, all right, cool. He goes, you don't seem excited. I said, no, it's cool. He goes, dude, these, these are like 300 bucks each. What? And that's because nobody was breeding them. So the two or three guys that did, you know, they had to increase the, the value of the product because it's, it's a scarce commodity. And now people are realizing that so many people are not breeding those other species. We need to start doing that again. And I think that that's going to help the diversity and not just the diversity at the show, but the want of those animals. They're not just going to walk by, you know, Jason Hood's table and say, man, look at the diversity of this table, the unique species. They're going to actually buy them or actually engage with them and, and go from there. This that's my hope. Yeah. The 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 backstory that a lot of people don't realize with the the Mexican black kings and also some of the leucistic species is the Asian buyers were buying all that up. That's what drove the market. They were uh, there was an all black or all white snake um, a couple of years ago. There was some I don't know annual holiday or something where they're releasing an all black snake or an all white snake was good luck. So that's where some of that came from. So they were coming in, they were buying up everything they could find flip side of that, much like the turtle hobby found out 20 years ago, the uh, Chinese market has now warehousing huge snake collections. So a lot of these easily produced colubrids are going to be swamping the market because they're, they're producing them for pennies because they're, they're just everything we, that we have to pay extra for here because of our market. is just not the same there. And they're producing absolute crap tons of these things. But the, like the um, red ear sliders, they were exporting millions of them a year until the Chinese said, nah, we're good. We've have our own farm set up now. We don't need to import them anymore. And that we're going to see the same thing with the colubrids on that end as well, unfortunately. Well, I just I know uh, there, there's was... there's a, a there's other markets on the planet that are weird. Yeah, I, I totally totally get that. I just remember there was a, a breeder by me who annually was producing somewhere between like sixty two hundred and seven thousand California king snakes, and they got to a point where they're like, you know what, we're sick of black and white snakes. And they sold off all their breeder adults for like a hundred bucks a piece to wholesalers. And they're just like, we're done. And then you saw a drop in California King snakes because nobody realized that this one, this one dude and his wife were pumping them out. And no, that bells? You know, what's that? Was that bells? No, it's, it's a, a local guy that's oh. under, under the radar people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the hobby lost people like John Schmidt, who ran Suncoast Herpetological. And at one point, he was producing absolute thousands of colubrids. And the people that bought out his company were sitting on a gold mine and they flipped to ball pythons. It's like you, you don't understand that the reason that John was who he was and how he had success 
was because he had all these colubers. You would go to the shows to find him, to find his table of just massive amounts of colubrids that he was producing from corns to bulls to milks to kings. He was the guy and he was at Daytona every year. And also the, when the Asian buyers came through, they would go straight to John's table and buy boxes and boxes and boxes of his, his animals. Now he's gone. So that market's right there. Like they're not, not buying those animals anymore, but there's nobody really filling that in. So um, it, it's kind of funny to go into Daytona and see like Mike Falcon who produces a bunch of milk snakes every year, but between the local in, in country wholesale guys and the out of country wholesale guys, they go hit Mike up and Mike's willing to sell some stuff on Friday apparently. Cause every time I've seen him in the last few years, he's sitting on five or 10 animals and that's it. Like Mike, what happened? You have a bad year. He goes, Oh, fantastic year. Everything's sold. <laughs> it's there there's there's people that are definitely wanting these animals yeah yeah i remember the the entourages on a friday where you'd have you know one little guy with a fanny pack full of cash and eight <laughs> other eight other dudes as his entourage walking around and just literally cleaning out tables you know whether it be horn frogs no. or colubrids or what have you it's not cites it's gonna go <laughs> <laughs> Billy's over there laughing. Sides? Oh no, it's garbage. <laughs> the poor carpet guy. <laughs> the the Asian guys come up to my table and then I see them be like excited and then they see what happens because of the Sides thing. So maybe oh, one day when Billy. I get the other stuff going. Yeah. Poor Billy. <laughs> Well, switching gears, I got to ask, as someone who has uh, – the only Espedites I've ever kept is that one pissed-off Woma. If someone wants to get into Espedites, what do you recommend? And not so much in terms of the species, but just getting the ball rolling. Um, for some reason, like 90% of what's available for information online from most people – in my opinion, is absolutely wrong. And like, I sent Billy a video today that was just gratuitously, <laughs> gratuitously wrong. Guy had every like absolutely everything wrong, including that he was his his pair were two males that he was breeding, and he was they were really receptive because they were two males fighting and wrestling. And like, I sent it my wife, and my wife looked at it. And she goes, "None of this is right." Like he, nothing he said is right. Yeah, no, that, that was my point. Um, there is just massive amounts of misinformation. Um, number one, they are not a carpet python. They are not a, a green tree python. They are basically a large mobile predator like an indigo. And like an indigo, they are going to eat. They're, the my, my albino project, I think, is suffering from the fact that they were kept almost anorexic while developing and i think that's damaged my female because this is the second year in a row i've gotten slugs out of her everything else seems to produce for me normally so if everything else produces this year and it's just slugs out of her that's what i'm going to chalk it up to i'm going to keep trying but i don't know what else i can do but um it, it, in the hobby in general 
we had this whole switch from obesity in the 90s and early 2000s to like hipster i don't feed my snake mentality today like i don't get what's what's going on like i get it that you you're super cool and you know everything and everything's really simple just don't feed your snake and it's going to live longer that's not reality snakes eat a lot they eat in the wild they eat almost you know daily every other day in the wild every feed study you find shows them eating not I shouldn't say everything, but for what I, the species I keep, they're feeding daily, every other day. Me feeding them once a week is a weird change for them for what they would naturally be doing in the wild. Uh, they eat smaller stuff. Like there was a king cobra study where the guys followed a king cobra. The damn thing ate a, a pope's tree viper, which is like an 18 inch long snake, two or three a day, every day for a couple of weeks. In captivity, we feed them these, you know, jumbo black rats or pythons or whatever that's not what they're eating in the wild um and, and similarly with with aspidites they're eating a lot of small meals or some larger meals there are now a crap ton of rats in in uh australia so they're definitely eating rats in the wild they're eating rabbits in the wild that's just what they're doing um, they're not dying of obesity over there that seems to be a, a strongly overplayed storyline with them you can keep them and you can feed them just large rats not jumbos but just regular large rats they do just fine i've kept them for years like that um somebody just did a a, a, a whole talk where well yeah they're gonna die at seven years old none of mine have it's a it, the, the basic is there are no absolutes in the hobby there are no absolutes in, in live animals there's no absolutes in in snakes in general or Python specifically, but absolutely you can't just decide that these things don't want to eat when they do their job in, in, in the world is to reproduce, to reproduce. They need calories. Calories takes you feeding them. If you don't want to feed them large rats, cool. Feed them small rats, but feed them a couple times a week and get the food into them. But that's like the, my biggest pet peeve right now is everybody's underfeeding their animals in, in horrible ways. Um, it, it, I don't know. It, that's every, every, everything I look up on, on YouTube and on podcasts right now, that's the same storyline from everybody. And I have great success with my blackheads and I feed them. So yeah. if I you're going to be a guy that, that produces every couple of years and you produce a small clutch and not all the animals hatch, but I'm over here producing 10 egg clutches every single year Last year, notwithstanding, I moved and I screwed things up. Uh, it wasn't diet. It was I didn't put timers and my light cycle was way off. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And hopefully this year I'll prove that out. But if you're going to be a guy that's not producing them regularly and not producing good clutch sizes, probably not the best person or perhaps somebody who's never bred before. A lot of these guys have never bred an animal before. Like the guy that sent Billy a thing never produced an animal in their life, but they're, they've got a YouTube page and 10,000 views on their video talking about exactly how to keep these animals and everything's wrong. So find somebody that knows what the hell they're talking about and who has a track record, track record of reproducing the animals in captivity and talk to them. Don't believe because yeah. there's this rehash of the same information that somebody came up with at some point 
and you can almost get the same verbiage from everybody that you hear it from. It's like, you, what are you speaking off of? You don't have experience. So how, how are you telling me this? So that that's just my, my giant pet peeve. And Billy knows it makes me crazy to hear all this stuff. My yeah. wife's laughing at me right now. It's a little bit. It, yeah. It's cool, I get man. my wife got so much passion about this because it just gets me a little nutty, but uh, no. And that's, that, that's great, man. I love hearing that. And I think, what I, you mentioned the whole hipster i'm not going to feed i'm not going to feed my snake too much like i understand that i know exactly what you're talking about i think it comes down to at some point in the past decade the thought bored its way into people's minds of my snake is stagnant it's static you know it's just sitting there in its enclosure maybe it does a lap a couple times a day but it's not out cruising hundreds of yards in its life daily on the pursuit of, of prey and mates. It's not so burning the calories it's, it's taking in. Right. It's not burning the calories it's taken in. But at the same time, if you're monitoring your animal and you're mindful of that caloric intake, much like you are, then it balances itself out. And I think that, that yeah. people need to remember that, you know, cage size, cage size is another thing. Get them up to a six foot cage. Yeah. That's if what, you, if you can only, if you can only put a, 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 a animal that gets to seven or eight feet long into a four foot cage, like a blackhead, maybe you don't need to have so many of them. Maybe drop down to a few less animals, get a few bigger cages. Because my animals in six foot cages, I throw them outside every once in a while. Not, I mean, realistically, I would say each animal gets maybe two days a year where I get it outside. By the time I go through all of them and everything else I'm doing, and, you know, I, I work six days a week, five days a week, I'm working. So it's really Sundays that I get to get out there and mess with the animals. So it gives me, let's say there's 56 in a year. I'm not getting through all my animals every time. I got I got work to do when I'm out there. So honestly, realistically, they each get out maybe once or twice a year outside of their cage. So give them a bigger cage. A six-foot cage seems like it's a, a fairly reasonable setup for them. And if you want them to have – here's – that's another one of these uh, <laughs> people want to have the cleaning crews, the 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 um, bioactive. What are they? What the hell are they bioactive. call it? Bioactive. Thank you. Um, those stupid bioactive cages. But what do they do? They get they they bleach and 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 bake their wood before they put it in the damn cage. Like, what are you scared? You're going to introduce an insect to your cage full of insects? Like, uh, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> but if you <laughs> that notwithstanding another pet peeve of mine but if you want to see your animals any any animal that you keep it in captivity do something amazing grab the leaf litter underneath an oak tree and throw it in a cage your snakes or your lizards or whatever you have in there will go and they will inspect every leaf all the way around the leaf edges and guess what if you throw in an ant or a pill bug it doesn't matter you're not really going to introduce any terrible parasites into your enclosures. I promise you. I've been doing it for over 20 years. I've never had a, a mass die off because an ant got in my cage. So, I mean, but they, they will absolutely use their brain and inspect every single leaf and go through everything. And it's an amazing thing to watch. Like that's like, I, I'm building my collection now, hoping to, to get to a point where I don't have to go have a day job. So I can spend more time with my animals, but the end result is I have less time with my animals uh, now. But the uh, 
the, the great times is when I set up a brand new cage and get to sit down and watch it and just, you know, some days I just stop and, and just check to see what's going on. How do the animals like the cage? What did I set up? What, did, what can I do differently with them? And just sit there and spend an hour staring at a cage. And that I do miss that. But the, if you, if you have that time, throw some leaf litter in there. It's amazing. And it doesn't have to be a bag that you spent $10 on, on somebody's table at a show. Cause guess what? That's just somebody raking it off their ground. Like, <laughs> I don't know what special magic you think they did to those leaves to clean them. They're not clean. Well put, man. Well put. Have yeah, you guys I ever like done thrown uh, in leaf litter to the cages? For dart frogs. Yeah, I've done it for a lot of different Do stuff. it for a snake. Do it for a snake, and it's you'll watch them tongue flick the entire circumference of a leaf and then go to the next one. Oh, yeah. And they'll yeah, get bored. Some... Yeah. Like you put a shed in from another animal, and they're instantly just like scanning it. You know. Or in the case of Dr. Wyman, just eating it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's those little things that we forget to do or we don't think about doing or never know we're allowed to do because there's a whole subculture of the hobby that they're on care sheets and not on logic. And they don't know they're, they're allowed to do that kind of thing. It's, it's what makes keeping the animals amazing. Just watching them do their thing for once in a while. Well said, man. Definitely well said. Yeah. If we can get away from the... P and Cody did that with their stuff. You know, they'd go take branches outside, rinse them off, and throw them in their mama cages and stuff when they spruce them up for carpet fest. And the snakes were instantly checking them out, scanning, you know, cruising. I think it's just the introduction of anything new, period. You know, even if it's like an extra hide or something you're throwing in, like it's just when I think of enrichment, I think of small stuff like that. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like I built an entire jungle gym in my yard that I can put this thing on for three hours and sit outside. You know, it's, uh, you know, small stuff, just anything to get the gears turning. The leaf litter thing is just, it's worth doing at least once. I, I highly recommend it. If you've got glass front enclosures, you don't have all racks or you can actually see the animals. But that's, there's a lot of stuff out there that we, people are, are doing because they either don't know they're, they're not allowed to not do that or because they're following care sheets or whatever. I was just talking with Ron St. Pierre the other day. Uh, I was over at his house picking something up. And we, we got on the whole subject of care sheets and how we, we actually weren't on the subject of care sheets at all. We were on the subject of the environment things live in and how anti care sheet that is. But that's all you really need to know. Like what Ron's doing over there, all the magic he's working with, all the lizards he's working with, none of it's based on a care sheet because nothing he's doing is on a care sheet. What he's doing is he's looking at where these animals live and what their habitat's like and the rain cycles and the and this and that and, and just the environment. It's crazy. If you do that, like people ask me where, where Pacillanotus live or, or what's the Pacillanotus care sheet rather. And I said, well, they live in Central America on edgeland habitat, much like our corn snakes. They're 
in and out of the jungle edges. They're raiding birds' nests. They're diurnally active. Okay, so you have a care sheet for that? Like, I just told you everything you need to know. You know, it's your okay. So let me let me back up. Moderate humidity, medium temperature with some hot spots, but areas to get away from the hot spots. I mean, what do you what do you want in a care sheet exactly? But it, it, it's they want you to, to tell them exactly how to put the branch at a thirty two degree angle, perfectly perpendicular from the heat lamp that they bought at Petco. Like the, they want step by step, man. Don't you know that? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> If we can get away from the, the care sheet mentality a little bit more, I think people would be a lot ha just happier with their animals. Like I think the care sheet thing is just people are afraid to screw up. Like people are afraid they're going to hurt something. You know, the animal's going to be at risk or something if they if they don't follow it step by step. But natural history and and scientific papers, I think, can give you so much more information. Like care sheet should just be like a extremely basic guideline of like starting point of you know temperatures okay this is what we're looking at and until you go and look at the weather apps and stuff and you do you know you look at the studies on on average rainfall in a given year in a certain area and like average temperatures then you can sort of fine-tune it but the, yeah i agree the care sheet thing is it's entirely too basic most of the time to true needs absolutely we get, it's that's it goes to the care sheet and the the feeding and the it it's all people not listening to common sense and just looking at the animals and how they live and it, it's there's two extremes people that have no knowledge so they're scared of everything and people have so much knowledge they think they know everything and both of them are ignoring the animal and where they come from like people ask me what the what temperature I keep my snake or what my hotspot temperatures are. I have, I have no idea. I've, I, I temp gun some stuff recently because someone was asking me just to see. But if you look at your animal and it's always in the hotspot, your cage is probably too cold. If it's never in the hotspot, the hotspot's too hot. If it spends a few hours there, it's probably just where it needs to be. You know, it, it that just seems like common sense to me, but mm -hmm. people don't do that. Yeah, I can confidently like, say that I've been both of those people. I've been the guy that's terrified I'm going to make a mistake, unless you're something pythons. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> and I've also been the guy that's like, I know what I'm doing, and it was, and I did it wrong. So, you know, there, there's no shame, and no one should have any shame or hesitancy or be embarrassed to experiment ask how and, and why and experiment yeah i mean obviously don't you know within reason within reason right yeah but there's no shame in being honest with yourself and being honest with everyone else and saying man i don't know what i'm doing or man i thought i knew but i don't well it's also what we've talked about where it's like how you would keep in south florida isn't going to be how jeff and kendra would keep in washington like right you have 100%. to think of your individual situation as well yeah you know yeah. it's just it's not nearly as cut and dry as as the care sheets make it to be and I don't know about you, but I I find the looking up of the natural history information stuff like that is just fascinating to read and it's yeah. really interesting. And when you can yeah. tie it into the hobby and what you're doing, like it's it's awesome to be able to look at that and be like, I can I can recreate this as best as I can. Sure. And then to see the animal thrive as a result is is awesome. Or better yet, not to the best that you can, it it drives you to try and be better at it. And really like, you know, we, we live in the, the era of technology, like you know, if you need to buy a mobile AC unit, 
do it. If you need to buy more radiant heat panels, do it. If you need to buy a humidifier or dehumidifier, you know, rock and roll. You know, I just I just went to my parents' house for dinner two days ago, and I went up into my old bedroom uh, just to grab something. I don't even remember what the hell it was, but I used to keep all my snakes in my bedroom, and all my my entire bedroom was all glass. Like I had windows and sliding glass door. There's a balcony, and I forgot how hot it got. And there's nobody living there. It's an, it's basically an empty room now, but it's so hot that I'm like, man, what was I doing back then? How was I? How did I have heat lamps in there? Like, I must have been nuts. We were all there at one point. You know, oh, yeah. I think there's there's that, like, point where um, someone that's going to dive in more to it, you know. Uh, and maybe once, you know, we're just assuming that they're, they've already gone through the the novice phase and they're already you know like they might not be able to read a field study and completely understand how to apply that to somebody if they're too prideful to accept what you know information is in front of them I'm always extremely open with all my info. I'm always happy to tell people exactly what I'm doing to succeed from incubation techniques to, to just how I'm caring for my animals. I have no problem sharing information, lay everything out exactly out. But like you said, what I do in Florida or Chicago or anywhere else I've lived might not be the same for you elsewhere in the country. I had somebody that was trying to figure out how to incubate, blackhead eggs in Arizona and I'm giving him my exact setup. He said, it just doesn't work. He said, they dehydrate like within the first week. It's just so dry. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I can't tell you how to fix what you have there. All I can tell you is what I do here. And that's the, I think the biggest, that, that, that's another one of my pet peeves in modern herpticulture. People forget that it, it, your success is only what you do but just because you have success a certain way doesn't mean that everybody else has to do it your way because it's just not going to work for everybody everywhere in the country. So these people that make these absolutes that say you have to do it this way, it's like, no, why would I have to do it that way when I don't live in the same area you live in? I don't live in the same with the same climate conditions or humidity conditions or anything else, or I simply don't have the same caging you have. I, you can tell me what you do to succeed, but you can't tell me how to do it. And vice versa, I can't tell you how to do it where you are, but I can tell you exactly what I'm doing. And you can take the fact of where I live and try to figure, okay, well, if he lives there and these are those conditions there and I live here and it's totally different, how can I mutate what he's doing to fit what I'm doing? Yeah. Right, right. But I mean, that's, a, that's, that's, that's where their fail. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it because just going back to my old hot, really hot bedroom, I remember I, I had a – carb python a blood python and a nubian cobra all in the same room and those are three drastically different ecosystems but i, ma- I made it work really well and it, it there's no there's nothing says that because your room is too arid that you can't keep a tropical species you just gotta like you said adapt and roll with it and learn how to do it your way and reach out to some other people that are in your same boat Be willing to think. That's the key. <laughs> well said. 
Jason, what else are you working with, man? Because every time I talk, you have some different Brettles, man. I'm going to be the Brettles king. <laughs> um, gunning for cannons, cannon spot. Yeah, yeah cannon's well, going to come off of the knees. You should take his blue tongue, man. <laughs> he, he's trying to get me to get his blue tongue. <laughs> I have some blue tongues. Try to get going outside here shortly. Um, I have some red ackies, yellow ackies, the Cunningham skinks, and then the just the turtles, the little Asian soft shell turtles. That's cool, man. How Things many are cool. You got? Uh, two, four, seven of the New England form, and I had a pair of Southerns, but the female died right after I got her. They were those that pair was old and beat up, and I'm like a third or fourth owner on that that group. But okay. they just finally started eating. I just I was able to get pictures because without food to entice them out of their hides, oh, they yeah. wouldn't come out of their hides winter long. Well, that's that's my next question. Uh, anytime somebody tells me they keep a gurnia, because I I love a gurnia, but like it's one of those things where I don't keep them, and I and that's why I love them kind of thing. But how close can you get before the roaches scatter? <laughs> they, um, I just went and just pulled. I got um, at for wintertime. I have some plastic I put over the cages to keep them a little greenhouse effect to keep them from getting too cold at night. And uh, just when the frost was coming in, and I put bricks next to the cage to hold the plastic against the side of the cage. So I was just had a brick there. So I just pulled the brick out and sat down. A cinder block. I mean, not a, not a brick, but a cinder block. And uh, I just sat there and didn't move. And I would say t- half of them came out. Two-thirds of them came out. So I was able to get some decent pictures of the – like I, um, I got them from Ron. Ron had – had the really amazing patternless female. Well, I got it now. Um, nice. And they're hopefully they'll produce for me this year. I got to make some changes to the caging. I realized after the fact, but um, it's they're not bad. It, it's you're right that they they see you from a ways off. Like they see me before I can see them, and oh, they yeah. absolutely fucking hide. But. If you're willing to sit there, and that's another thing, like it's, it's where I was willing to sit down for a half hour and throw some food into them and see them come out, and then they, they did. That's cool, man. You definitely got to keep me posted on them. I love those little spiky bastards. They are spiky. <laughs> they, uh, I got some of the those like half half height cinder blocks. And where the holes are like they they're narrow on one side than the other, so they go from like three quarters of an inch to like inch and a half. Yeah, it's like a hollow paper. Yeah, and they just jam themselves in there, and you cannot get them out. I mean, they they do exactly what they're supposed to do in those setups. I try to show them until like my nephews came over. I was trying to pull one out because I could see it was in the block. They ain't going anywhere. Yeah, I feel, <laughs> I feel like if you give them the right crevices they're worse than chuck wallows yeah but they're i mean so far they've been super cool it's it, the the sitting down and, and letting them come get relaxed and come out was definitely worth it uh in in inside they didn't do they were super skittish inside 
Um, I'm sure I could set up a better cage when I had them in, when I had them in temporary caging. Uh, but outside, I, I definitely enjoy them a lot more. And they've got like a drainage tube tunnels going underneath a big pile of uh, mulch. So they they just dive into those or dive underneath the, I got some, um, just some tin out there to let them get a little warmer. I'm probably going to pull that pretty soon and switch it out for plastic. But those guys definitely want a lot of heat. So yeah. it'll, it'll be a fun learning experience with them. I'm sure the, uh, the greenhouse covers, I'm sure that helps with them, you know, uh, uh, feeling more secure against like birds flying over and, you know, the squirrel running by and that kind of thing. Well, that was only for winter time. That's coming off. And uh, the I got turkey in my yard all the time. And they just dive into their hides when the turkey are out there. So they're, they don't feel secure at all. They're, they're constantly on the lookout, which is kind of what's cool about them. Because they will straight up, again, they're another species that will straight up look you in the eye. They want to know what's going on. And you can just feel them looking at you. Like, they're fine if they can't see your eyes. But if they can see your eyes, and like, oh, I got to go. So you, you have to like kind of pull back where they you get you hide behind some some line of obstruction so they can't see your eyes. You can be a, a, a blob there that's eyeless, but as soon as you have eyes, they want to dive back in. That's fascinating, Which, man. Fascinating. Yeah, it's it's that intelligence thing that I, I kind of I, I get I like. It's, a, it's the same like I said with the puffing snakes. They're the same thing where they're very eye oriented, much to my chagrin if they're striking at me because the if i let them get close enough they'll they'll go right for their face so <laughs> well you're so damn tall i'm amazed they can even see you're making eye contact with them to begin with i had the every once in a while i get a little carried away with my tiger rats and i'll like open multiple cages and try to feed them all at once and i got a nice little picture where one of my males just tagged me right right on the <laughs> uh right below the eye because it was like a cage, uh, a head cage, and I just stood up and bap. Like, Shit! All right, here's your chick. All right, off. But that's it, awesome. I like the things that'll slap you in the face every once in a while. <laughs> that made the night. <laughs> Where did you find uh, yellow wackies at? A uh, guy down here had some in Florida, and he was he was <laughs> he was trying to sell his roaches and the yellow ackies because we can't have uh, what we can't have discoids down here. Or no, we have to have discoids. We can't have the dubia down here. So the discoids are like gold. So you had a thousand dollars in roaches and a couple ackies. <laughs> it's a fair deal. <laughs> it was. It's a strange world we live in in Florida with all of the the special rules we got. The ever evolving rules at that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, no, I um I every single one of them I'm trying to stay abreast of and and stay on the legal side of everything cuz I just don't need any headaches. But yeah, they're they're constantly trying to make new laws for us down here. I just went through the uh, now I know what that's all about. Went through what? The import of the state. Uh, 
Yeah. It's not hard. It's just another step to do. Yeah, and it's free too, yeah. right? Yeah, it's free. You can get one that's a one-time permit just to bring in anything for day or something, or you can get one that's uh, connected to your class three license and is good for a year. Back what comes in and into the state, so it's not too difficult. Cool. It, just another method for them to keep track of everything going on and try to create evidence for future issues if they so choose to have them. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's a like the if you do the Daytona Expo, there's nothing on the law books that says you have to give all the information they ask for at Daytona where the animals originate and everything else. But at the same time, there is no law books that you are supposed to, as a vendor, supply your permit number to every one of your, your buyers, which no one's ever done. So if you are in the state of Florida and you purchase an animal, you're supposed to have the permit number of the person you purchased it from. That's part of your requirement. And no one does that. And that's one of those things I think they're going to start trying to push to just get people if they, if they basically if they want to get you there's a bunch of rules on the books that no one follows and they've never enforced that they can come out and start enforcing so yeah that's how it was with, with the venomous stuff was if billy had a venomous license and i have a venomous license well and i'm going to buy a snake off of billy i would have a photocopy of his license and the law actually states that you're supposed to keep your original license on you when transporting which no one does because God forbid, you know, your Dunkin' Donuts coffee spills out of your cup holder and destroys the license. Well, then you're screwed. So everyone just kept photocopies. And then with the advent of, you know, smartphones, they said, okay, well, you can keep a picture of your license on your phone. So anytime I buy Venomous from somebody uh, in Florida, I just take a cell phone picture of their license. But the permits, that permit number, that permit's only good for a year. So after the year, I delete them. And I told my inspector, I was like, dude, he's like, you don't have a copy of the license? I said, no, man, it expired 16 months ago. Like, what? You know what I mean? So they, they have, they're trying to keep tabs on everything, but some of it's a little wonky. Your permit number doesn't change, though. I didn't, on, I. On the license number does. On the Venomous. My, on the I'm pretty sure my class three didn't change. My actual permit number didn't change from when I had it originally. I left for a decade and came back, and I'm pretty sure the number was the same. Or maybe it's my driver's well, license. I know, I, know. A, <laughs> I know a few weeks ago, and FWC was there, and they were asking for inventory list and they would have uh, where the from. If you bred it, they wanted the hatch date attached to it. Um, they were counting said. Like one vendor got uh, fined, another guy got his stuff all complicated. Uh, at that show, but that was just a couple of weeks ago. 
Well, I just looked to see if I have an old license on my phone of myself, and I, I don't, so I can't look. But something I never noticed before is I, I just noticed on, on my current licenses that my license number, or let me let me make sure I'm not saying this wrong, my license number for Venomous is the same. I'm sorry, the applicant ID number is the same for my class three as it is for my Venomous, which I'd never noticed before. But the license ID numbers themselves are totally different. So, I don't know. Maybe that's what it was. It's two different numbers. Yeah. yeah. I just keep receipts for everything, you know? It's probably so that way, you know, if, if someone else ended up getting the same ID number as you, then they'd be fine having two people pop up, and then they'd have a harder time uh, keeping track of, of who's who. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is anybody going to go to the next meeting? FWC meeting? Yeah. I can't because they do it on a Tuesday at two in the afternoon in Pensacola. Like what, how am I going to handle that? You know what I mean? I got to take time off from work to go to a meeting where it's a formality and I have no say anyway. Sorry. I got a little yeah. soapboxy there. Is that what the whole day is way about the meetings? Yeah, no, you're not wrong. They don't, they don't make it to where it's uh, something that we can all attend easily. And, uh, I'm in the, uh, the lawsuit on the Tegus, and they want to know every time I tried to contact the state in every meeting I attended, they want documentation of all that. I don't, I didn't know that was something I would have to uh, document and keep track of, but apparently if that's part of their discovery for the lawsuit is they want to know every time I try to get in and make any comment in any fashion, how many times have I contacted them? How many times did I email them? Every, every meeting I attended, every phone-in call I attended, um, if I listened to US Arc Florida and dropped off the call on the final call to try to get back in, um, all this stuff, and it, it's it's interesting to see where what route they're taking with this. But again, it's you know things that um, you probably should be doing all the time that we don't think we should be doing that we don't you know we don't know enough. Yeah, it just comes down to the, the the difficulty of going to these meetings and taking the time off from work. Like, I, I can't afford to miss two days of work on average. You know what I mean? Like, I like, got to pay the bills. And in 2016, when they really revamped the Venomous stuff, uh, a, a friend of mine who got his license through me, we went up to St. Augustine for, went for that meeting. And... I took two days off from work. We booked a hotel in St. Augustine because I didn't know anybody up there. And uh, it's too far of a drive for me to, to, to do all in one day. And we were there for, I think, 50 minutes. And there was like 60 people there. It was a, it was a good turnout. They let like eight people talk. The entire time, the panel of commissioners was like, it's just a formality and they didn't care what we were yeah. saying or how we were saying it. Their minds were made up. So to me, it was almost, what's the point? You know what I mean? I mean, I know that sounds defeatist, but if I got to, I have to put out my money to go do this and participate when they're not even going to consider what we're saying. We as a whole. The, in, in the venomous aspect, maybe it wouldn't have mattered, but in the generalist, statement i'd say it does it absolutely matters how many people show up and the fact that rarely do we ever get 60 people at any of the meetings um to get anybody out there is a bonus they've 
I've talked to some of the people who go to the meetings and they said two or three people show up and that's it. And unfortunately we're in a time right now where um, a lot of people got money and amongst the people in the world that got money were animal rights activists and they're turning around and donating that money and they're not all pissed off at each other about who's on which side of the political forum or any other uh, dividing factor we could possibly have or who keeps ball pythons versus blood pythons. They're all just happy and hunky-dory with each other. And they're the ones trying to push all these laws through. They'll show up in numbers. And if we got two and they've got two, it's a wash. And they're unfortunately kicking the money into the these people that, <clears throat> while they're not elected officials, FWC members aren't elected officials, um, th- there are donations they can make here and there that do matter. And, and most of those people get elected, or not elected, they get appointed by the governor. I don't know if that's one of those neat little things to find out down here is that the governor appoints all these people and they're generally appointees that donated money to his election fund. And so they got to get that money to donate. So where does that money come from? Sometimes it's coming from animal rights groups that are donating that money with the, uh, the idea behind it being, well, once you get in there, you need to pass the laws we want you to pass or try to, which is if you look at us arc national, you see some of the same exact laws being pushed nationwide at different states. The this no, um, what is it? The Animal Transport and Circus Act or whatever that is. It's the same verbiage in multiple states. Same, the same law that's coming from the same people. So showing up to any of these meetings, while it it, it may seem completely pointless. If you're able to, it absolutely do it because it, it does matter. It's in some senses, it shows there's you know that if it matters just a little, it matters enough. You know. Yeah, I do find it interesting though. Maybe this is just me being paranoid, but I do find it interesting how the majority of these meetings are held in the upper portions of the state, say you know north of Orlando, and the I feel like the majority of the and I could be wrong with this. But I feel like the majority of the importers, the exporters, the wholesalers, the breeders, there's a lot in southern southern Florida, like South Peninsular Florida, and there's never meetings down here ever. So I don't know if that that has like that's a tactic of theirs. I don't know. Could be. <laughs> I mean, they're out of Tallahassee, where where majority, like you're mentioning, is out of Miami. That's where the imports coming in. The big money's down in Miami for sure, um, but all we can do is fight what we can fight. I mean, yeah, yeah. Now this most recent change that they did specifically to venomous laws, um, it's scared a lot of keepers, man. A lot of them because it there's a law pertaining to your neighbors that was part of class one animals, so lions, elephants, big dangerous stuff, you know. And they basically took venomous and lumped it in with that. And it's kind of it, it's kind of a no-brainer stuff that we would would have already done or already do do, but they didn't have it in writing per se. So they added it, which has scared a lot of people. So I contacted my inspector as well as my previous one in the county south of me, and they both said the same thing, like, hey, man, you're already doing it. So don't freak out. Like, we're just putting it in writing because it wasn't. So you know, the whole slippery slope thing, give an inch, take a mile. But a lot of it is people also don't 
look into it. They just see it and freak. So, you know, you gotta, we we have to do our due diligence to really read what they're putting out for good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, most of these laws are, most of these laws are in, in response to one or two or 10 people. They're not any further than that. You know, you, you can you can draw some really direct lines to certain individuals in the hobby, and no one wants to talk about that. You know. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Oh. <laughs> well, on a lighter note, <laughs> we're at the we're at the two hour mark. Where can people find you, Mister Hood? Uh, Facebook and Instagram, uh, Snakes Unlimited hyphen Jason Hood or just Snakes Unlimited Jason Hood, uh, depending on which location you're going to. I should hopefully pop up. Or if you know Billy, just have him talk to me. I'm like your secretary. <laughs> Can I get you working, man? We prefer a personal assistant. That's what that's what he was tonight, right? <laughs> Well, tonight he was the liaison because I was like, man, if, if I just message him, he's going to be like, fuck those guys. I'm Generally, I'm just worried about the connection out here. As you see, there's good reason for that. But, uh, yeah, I got a nice place in the country with some acreage, but no damn Internet. And I was telling Billy earlier today, I, I literally said, hey, what is it going to cost to get me Internet out here? And lady, the, the lady I was talking on the phone with is like, oh, it's going to be at least 3000 I'm like, all right, great. You can get that in writing. Sir, I'm like, just give it to me in writing. Just well, you know, let me let me look at the map. You know, this is probably more like six thousand. Okay, get it to me in writing. What? <laughs> It'll probably be like ten thousand dollars. I'm like, okay, and we need an engineer to look at it. All right, send them out. Come on, just let's. Let, what do I need to do? I'm in like 1990s dial-up out here. It's terrible. <laughs> well, your 56k and, modem turned out well. HughesNet. <laughs> Uh, that's unfortunately what I have is HughesNet. It's awful. And Starlink for I know everybody's gonna say Starlink. Starlink is on the Canadian border because I've already looked. <laughs> we'll just do what the I, Ukraine did and tweet Elon Musk and be like, "Yo." Yeah, yeah I don't. I don't think he cares about me down here. <laughs> I can know. go back to Chicago and get get internet. I can get Starlink in Chicago where I would never need it, but I can't get it. In the middle of nowhere here. Figures. Yep. Well, gentlemen, is there anything else we want to touch base on? I think we ruffled all our feathers. Bairds. <laughs> Bairds. I got a bunch of females sitting over here right now that are head hypo or albino, whatever, you, whichever way you want to go with those. I got a, I got a couple. Whatever here. reason they... I don't have any males. All my males sold at Tinley, and then I've been sitting on females ever since, which is such a bizarre state to be in. Smitty, get that man a male. I, I got females for you. I got male. I got adult males. I just don't have any any uh, juvenile males to go with the babies I got. They're awesome snakes. They are. 
You got to produce some so I can work with them, Smitty. I'm working so, on it, man. I'm trying. Oh. Everyone wants the Loma Altas, and it's like I don't know if if I get like six eggs and six babies, I don't know that any of them are going to be going anywhere. So. What? I told you. Tell me about them. Have you produced them before? Uh, I produced a clutch last year from two uh, Mexican types. I'm not going to say they're full-blown Mexican, but they're. Uh, it was a smaller clutch. I think I had. And they ate right away, right? All of them did, but one. And that that run to your one, I'm just going to keep because he's. I mean, he's rocking and rolling now, but initially he was he was a real pain to get going. But all the other ones were pretty uh pretty straightforward. I joked with a buddy of mine years ago that they'll eat coming out of the egg, and I had a, a clutch hatching and offered a pinky to one that was still on the egg, and I just grabbed the pinky out of my fingers and ate it. <laughs> <laughs> That's too cool. That's awesome. I hope you have pictures of that. No, this was this was years. This is like pre-cell phone stuff, but yeah, they were they're just an awesome animal. They uh. It's probably one of the most underappreciated uh, species we have. The colors they have on them and just the regular form is outstanding. Yeah. It's just one of those, the the more you look at it, the prettier it gets. But if you glance at it from across the room, it's a garbage snake. You know, it's the the biggest problem with them is if you don't have an adult in the table, you can't sell the damn things. It's like carpet pythons. Yeah. Bingo. (laughs) Tell me about it. All right. I'll bring some to Daytona for you. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming, man. Long overdue. For sure. Maybe you can get me to not have tequila next time and I'll babble less. This was episode 112 of Snakes and Stogies, brought to you by blackboxcages.com. Cages, racks, whether you think they're the devil or not, get you one. It's good stuff. And then Puget Sound Pythons, check them out Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. They're doing Reptile News Radio. Stay up to date with anything that's happening in herpeticulture and the sciences related. Um, they're staying up to date with all of it, so you can stay in the loop as well. And we will be back for THP Thursday. Uh, I think we're going to see if we can get Elijah Day on finally. Cool. So we'll good we'll stuff. See. He was complaining about his internet too, so we'll see how it uh, how it works out. But he's just being lazy. He might be. Yeah, he's he's in. Oh, He's in Gainesville. He should have plenty of access to He'll be fine. He'll be fine. So, anyways. Thanks, y'all. Bye.